Hey everybody, welcome, welcome here to show 89 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis coming at you here, quarantined in Eastern Europe. Uh, joined here today by my good friend Alec Harris, quarantined uh, in Eastern US. Alec is Managing Director of Halo Privacy. Uh, they provide secure communications, they combine cryptography and managed attribution for a variety of clients. I think in a pre and post coronavirus world, it'd be very interesting to talk uh, talk privacy and talk uh, Bitcoin with Alec uh, here today. So very happy to have him. Alec, thanks a lot for joining and welcome. Thanks, Matthew. This is awesome. Uh, been looking forward to this and, and you know appreciate your friendship and everything you're doing on the podcast. Oh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate the, the kind words here. We've actually wanted to have you on for, for a while. Uh, we've, I guess, Get right into it. This is the first show that I've done uh, since the virus has sort of fully overtaken, uh, gone around the world, and people have been on lockdown. You know, everybody's got their opinion. Everybody has their own way of dealing with it. I've turned off the news a little bit. I've turned off Twitter myself the past couple weeks. Uh, personally, uh, my partner, girlfriend, she's uh, she's in the working in the ICU. She's a doctor, and just a lot of uh, a lot of reasons personally that I've sort of you know you can read the headlines and know what everything's saying without. Uh, Going in, into the details of the stories, and and uh, I just didn't want to bog myself down with actually too much press and media uh, these past couple of weeks. But uh, that's just been what I've done. How are you holding up where you are? As we've discussed, I feel like we have it better than most. At least you know my wife and I, our two kids. Uh, in so much as you know, we live in the suburbs and we have some space, and there's certainly people that have it a lot harder. But um, I think collectively. This is a challenging time. It's weird times. Uh, it's it's fraught in terms of the you know general population's relationship with its governments, you know, state, local, federal, uh, as well as like global institutions. And uh, I've kind of been consuming more information than I usually do, uh, in part because it's just so fast paced. And as you said, there's so many opinions out there. And sometimes I'll see some, you know, disparate opinions that I find unlikely or objectionable. And I kind of get up on my high horse, you know, because I feel like I have better information. Uh, but in my better moments, you know, I try to have some compassion for the different ways that people are looking at this and approaching it. And everyone's, you know, has a unique experience with their own personal health. And, and this is kind of a global situation that affects everyone personally. Um, but yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap my head around. Uh, and you know, I'm far from expert at any of this stuff. Um, but you know, consider me an interested party at least. We were talking a little bit pre-show, like this is, I guess, pretty much uh, related to my uh, general region, but uh, very, very big picture, hopefully very far away, uh, sort of topics. But Eastern Europeans, they have a history of war torn pasts. And you know myself, being you know second generation uh, son of immigrants, came to the U.S. You know after after World War II, you always sort of wondered if there would be other crises or other things to sort of put people on their back. And it's amazing how it's come so quickly, and it's not a war that have put people on their backs, but it's it's this pandemic. You know, of course, certain people. You know, I've heard Bill Gates for years saying that pandemics are a serious threat, so on and so forth. But when it actually happens, and it happens so quick. It definitely can be can be alarming, you know, socially, psychologically for a lot of people. But uh, I don't know. A bit personally for me, it's uh, it's just interesting, you know, being away from family and knowing that I can't go to my family, which lives in the U.S. 
you know, I'm here in Eastern Europe, and of course I'm with people that are close close to me here. But it's just it's amazing how quick uh, and and how fast the tide can change. So one of the things I've been thinking about is, uh, you know, you and I are about the same age, and so we've been on this planet since the initial SARS and swine flu and uh, Ebola and uh, H1N1. And so this isn't the first time there's been kind of a global health scare, but in the West, we've largely been spared that. Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of brought that same bias when the initial news started coming out. I was like, oh, this is another, you know, it's like SARS the first time. It's going to be in Asia and it'll start in China and it's obviously spread to Hong Kong and the real, you know, Southeast Asia might be affected, but it seems unlikely to really get all the way over here. Uh, and you know, that was folly to, to go down that line of thinking. Um, and, yeah. but yeah, it's a different type of crisis. And, uh, you know, I was in college, uh, during nine 11, uh, and that obviously changed the world, but it was, it was different cause we were all together physically. Uh, and, so this is kind of being, it affects everyone, but we all go through it in isolation, which uh, is certainly a unique experience for me. Let alone, I mean, the economic impact that this is, this is obviously going to have. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's literally impossible to shut down so much of the workforce for, you know, like for 18 months. So there's going to be balancing acts that are going to come from this and, People already are arguing over, you know, stimulus and the appropriate, you know, get back to work plans or whatnot. And there's obviously there's just uh, there's going to be so much to wade through. And it's it's but it, but I think for sure it is kind of going to be like this this 9-11 moment where there's like a pre 9-11 world and then there's a post 9-11 world. And it's absolutely going to be the case with this pandemic is that just, you know, there are gonna be certain things that are never going to be the same. And uh, that's actually, I'm really glad that, you know, we can have this conversation uh, here to sort of wade through some of that, because you're obviously an expert on privacy. Uh, you have a lot of insight into, I think, certain legislation to certain needs of uh, private individuals, companies, even governments. Privacy is a big thing on my mind here. And then, uh, you know, maybe some other topics we can get into too. But um, there's going to be a pre-coronavirus world and then a post- coronavirus world. I don't know. What are your immediate thoughts there? From a privacy standpoint, you know, as you and I've discussed, the privacy world is kind of up in arms about what's going on globally. Uh, and I think rightfully so. But the issue is, you know, the surveillance that's uh, required for, you know, monitoring public health and, and containing the spread of, of COVID. And uh, those are, you know, on their face, good things like that, that needs to be done. Uh, but it's it's like one degree different from kind of mass surveillance of populations. Uh, and what we've seen, you know, in the past is that when governments kind of seize control over authorities and so under exigent circumstances, uh, they rarely fully cede them back or, or will do so over a long period of time or will be forced to, you know, by the electorate or their population. And so as we see you know, in Hungary, uh, and that's kind of a stark example, uh, because it's recent and because the power grab was somewhat complete. Uh, but even in places where, you know, for instance, Singapore was early with their own kind of, uh, surveillance application that they used to trace contact and, and isolate the spread. And they seem to have done that effectively. Uh, and they open sourced that application, uh, and so now anyone, any other government or any other individual can grab that tool, which 
I think they open source it, you know, for good reason so that others could kind of model that, that type of um, public health surveillance. But who's to say once that cat's out of the bag, you know, someone's going to use that for ill and maybe a lot of people. Uh, and so, you know, from the privacy standpoint, we have to kind of be monitoring that and be, be hesitant to just adopt things, you know, in a time of emergency, just because they seem like maybe it's a good idea and at least question these things. Um, I think being suspicious is okay, or a healthy skepticism is merited at all times, but probably even more so when when things are changing rapidly. We were talking pre-show about how you know the Patriot Act that had a lot of uh, powers that uh, again they were seen as emergency or needed at the time, and then just the government never sort of seeds those back. Um, Ron Paul used to say, you know, the more friendly the bill sounds, it's actually the more ominous that it is. So we can be prepared for a lot of that. But actually, I was a bit remiss. Wanted to do sort of the proverbial uh, background question for you as well at the beginning, Alex. So um, uh, we started to talk on privacy here. And, and obviously, I've alluded that you're, you're very, uh, very deep in that space and uh, in the privacy uh, industry and, and an expert on a lot of things there. Why don't you just uh, give a little bit more of our listeners what Halo does and how you get into it? Yeah, sure. And so uh, the actual experts at Halo are all rolling their eyes right now if they're listening. But um, yeah, I kind of got into it uh, by accident, which is how most of the good things have happened for me. But in 2011, I was introduced to uh, Lance, who is the CTO of Halo, uh, and he was working on a different project that was using one-time pad cryptography. Uh, And I had not heard of one-time pad cryptography, but uh, it is a, it's basically a symmetric cipher, and it's been around since uh, World War I, I want to say 1916 maybe. Uh, and at the time, you know, up until recently, it was, you know, each party has a pad, uh, and, you know, one page of that pad is used at a time, and as it's consumed, it's thrown away and never reused. And so applying uh, mathematical sort of brute force attacks to it doesn't yield you any information um, about the plain text other than the kind of the maximum length of the message. And so, you know, that's, if it's implemented correctly, it's unbreakable uh, by kind of the computer attack. But uh, it's obviously been updated for the digital age. And uh, the way that I really like it, as far as a description goes, is, uh, you know, very strong asymmetric cryptography is always a math problem, right? And so you might have, you know, a 256-bit cipher, and uh, that is like the equivalent of saying, you know, what day of the week will it be on April 15th, a thousand years from now? And I can't do that in my head, but a computer can tell you that because it's a math problem. Uh, And what one-time pad is, is like saying, what will the weather be like on April 15th, a thousand years from now? Uh, you could run every permutation of possible weather and one of those might actually be correct, but you would never know because there's really no information uh, to glean. It's just random. Uh, And that's what one-time pad is. And I got really interested in it uh, by working with Lance at a company called Rune. Uh, And then that kind of transitioned into Halo, uh, which was an extension of that and an expansion of the, uh, the sort of suite of tools into voice, text, video, file sharing, uh, and then a bunch of things in the background that I find to be very interesting and are kind of dark arts, if you ask me. So where we hide or obfuscate the identity of the people in a communications network, uh, either by 
kind of giving false vectors or, or um, covering or obfuscating true identities uh, and then severing the links between the parties so that you can't really establish connections between people. Uh, and the, the very like brief way I describe that is, so if I was to send you, know, you a text to saying, we're having a surprise birthday party for, and by the way, we'll shout out to Shane and Laura, our, our good friends that introduced us. So we're saying, you know, we'll have a surprise birthday party for Shane. Uh, well, the information in that text is uh, interesting, right? That That is actually worth protecting because we don't want Shane to know. Yeah. Uh, and in, so that's why cryptography is important. And then uh, if we have someone who is, let's say, politically compromised communicating with someone in another country, the identity of that person is actually relevant. So in uh, a security posture, you would want to not only protect the, what they're saying, but also the identity of that person. And then if you go a step further, if you have someone, for instance, who's in uh, Mosul communicating with someone who's in McLean, Virginia, well, that just the link between those people is suspicious. Uh, and so we would, you know, offer that you would want to sever the link between the parties so that uh, the contents are protected, the identity is protected, and then you don't establish kind of links that allow you to unravel a network. Uh, and so that's, that's what we do. Uh, and the sort of happy uh, discovery along the way of how powerful Bitcoin could be in building out these platforms is what kind of led me into the cryptocurrency world and ultimately you know, got us talking. Uh, but I'll just pause there and when we can talk about Bitcoin, obviously forever. Um, but that's kind of what I've been up to. And uh, it's led me into being, you know, someone who cares a lot about privacy and admittedly a newcomer to it. So, you know, before all this, it, it wasn't really on my radar. Uh, and I try to have some empathy for people who, you know, maybe haven't had the same exposures I have and, and to kind of invite them into these things as opposed to, you know, scold people who aren't, you know, of the same mind. It goes without saying that a lot of people in, in Bitcoin and in crypto in general, they're very amenable to privacy, uh, very much care about it. Not even going into the specifics about if you use uh, Bitcoin versus Monero or if you coin join or not. I think just generally that ethos of, of privacy and having some protections online is, is important to most people in the space. So uh, I think it'll be fascinating to, to dig deeper on that. But I think from the overview that you gave, it should be clear that, that you guys are definitely um, definitely deep in the space, definitely providing a lot of interesting services. Who are some of your clients? Yeah, so it's actually a very wide swath of people. And uh, I'll just say, you know, anyone who owns bearer assets is usually into privacy and security. Uh, so yeah. uh, whether that's gold or any kind of, you know, banknote or, or obviously Bitcoin, um, it, it's hard to be in charge of your own um, money and, and not be thinking about these things. Good point. But uh, yeah, so we we do a fair amount in the private sector across a variety of verticals. You know, healthcare, uh, finance, um, companies that handle intellectual property or that have reputational concerns if information gets released. Uh, some of it's just individuals who uh, care about privacy. Um, and then there's a good section of what we do that's in the government space or kind of supporting that in, in, in the wings. Uh, and that's also really interesting, too, and has a somewhat different flavor. But um, you know, ultimately, these, these tools are fairly universal. So if you're protecting information or people, you know, regardless of whether they 
work at a bank or, or work for a government agency, it, it looks fairly similar, um, obviously with, with some exceptions. Yeah, I want to ask you that just quickly. I think it's always interesting. Um, again, crypto, Bitcoiners, a lot of classical liberals, a lot of libertarians, a lot of people that are pro-individual, anti-socialized group, social welfare, uh, maybe anti-state. And when you talk about providing services, uh, you mentioned you know you have some government agencies and whatnot. There's immediate knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people in in the Bitcoin space, libertarian space, that like they, on principle, would never work with a government or this and that. What would you say to some of that sort of that knee-jerk reaction about some people that that wonder or maybe are even suspicious uh, to someone who provides services to the government? Uh, great question. A uh, couple of things. First of all. Uh, if you believe in privacy, then it, I don't believe that that's a selective thing. Uh, and so if you believe in privacy, then that means that you believe that someone has the privacy to, uh, you know, be unfaithful to their spouse, just like they have the privacy to, you know, uh, blow the whistle on, you know, corporate malfeasance, just like they have the privacy to kind of do whatever they need to do. And just like cryptography is, you know, thankfully been considered free speech in the U.S., uh, it has to be kind of broadly available, uh, but kind of more specific to your question, what we do is inherently defensive. Uh, and so some of the concerns I see in governments on, around the world is in kind of their offensive posture of collection, surveillance, analysis, intercept, mm. um, and, and all of the things that go along with that. But, uh, you know, defensive privacy, I think, is... Uh, something that should be offered and available to everyone. And it's, it technically is available to everyone, but it's really hard. Uh, as you and I have been talking about for a while, it's just a constant grind to maintain personal privacy. Um, and, you know, usually requires some financial resources and time and, and a little bit of technical wherewithal and uh, sustainment and persistence. And, you know, if we can kind of help lower that bar for folks, that's great. And that, that includes for governments. Uh, and my experience with, you know, with the U.S. government has been actually very positive and it's all kind of niche and anecdotal. So this is not, I think, governments writ large are unreliable narrators uh, in the U.S. For, we're lucky in that we have unreliable narrators in the federal government that we allow dissent. Uh, you know, you don't see that everywhere. But uh, I think... You know, if you kind of look at just the people that we interact with, they're trying to do the right thing uh, within a kind of difficult construct of bureaucracy. Uh, where things get muddled is is more, I think, on the political side. Um, but that, that's maybe a whole other episode of Oprah. So, uh, but I, I agree. Like, it's worth it's worth examining and being skeptical about. And when I see you know, a company from another country that is doing, you know, government work, you know, I, I think it's worth pausing and just kind of uh, being skeptical of that and, and thinking about how their technology could be used in a variety of ways. There's obviously so many layers to that, like there is with everything, security included. But uh, just on this one question of, you know, who you work for, who you work with, I mean, there are some free market economists that, uh, go out of their way not to accept any government money or not accepting government clients. And then there are others uh, on the other end of the spectrum who, I, I just use the example of economists because again, it's sort of something I'm more familiar with. There are other uh, equally, quote, free market economists who have worked you know, their whole lives at you know, government state-run universities, you know, basically railing against the state. 
And then you have people in the middle who, uh, you know, are just like, well, you know, you got to use every tax break that you can and every, you know, any money that you can get any way you can get it, you know, you do what you got to do and whatever. I, I just, I throw that out there because it's certainly not so cut and dry. And um, I think the way that you said it about providing defensive services is, is very interesting. And it's actually, I think, leads to the next question. Back to what we were saying, you know, before we, we talked a little bit about your background, what's happening now with this virus, what's happening uh, with some of the, the changes in applications, like you mentioned in Singapore, there's a full uh, barrage of things happening against privacy right now. So what are some of the things that are worrying you? This just sort of reminds me of uh, probably some of the listeners have, have seen the movie SLC Punk, which uh, came out kind of when I was in college, I think. And it's about this anarchist in Salt Lake City. Uh, and he does everything he can to kind of like tear down institutions from the outside, being as like obnoxious and, and alternative as possible. Uh, and the conclusion of the movie is that he ends up going to Harvard Law School and becoming an attorney. Uh, and he ultimately says, you know, you can do more damage to these institutions from inside. Uh, and so, you know, I think that while we're kind of sitting here, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, uh, being concerned about how governments are grasping at surveillance techniques and, and authorities pretty rampantly and without a lot of objection, just because, you know, it's being done in the name of public health. Uh, we should, at least my opinion is we should want good people to be in government uh, and to be involved uh, and to have some of the criticism be from within. Uh, and, you know, in the U.S., that's why we have inspector generals and um, uh, kind of checks and balances within the system. And th what, what concerns me uh, is that you have countries that are, are already leaning authoritarian, uh, that already had strong controls over their population, that will just exercise that to a higher degree now to kind of shut off you know, any hope of uh, alleviating the, that type of population control in the future. And, you know, some of the most obvious things are, so we can't really go out in public and gather in groups anymore. So you don't see any kind of public demonstrations anymore. Uh, and you have a lot of people who, you know, may not be quite as technically savvy and are of a, another generation. And so they don't know how to use the tools that would allow you to, you know, voice um, opinions online or, or to kind of congregate online. And so there's certainly been a squashing of the sort of the public uh, voice. And what we've seen, and you know, this is all anecdotal because the information coming from China is obviously yeah. sparse and, and unreliable, but the amount of control that they're exacting over their population uh, to halt the spread of coronavirus is, I mean, they were already doing things that I, that I think were uh, unparalleled anywhere else. And then, you know, it seems like they took it up two or three levels to include kind of checking in via QR codes everywhere you go. So that sure. not only can you trace someone who potentially did test positive, but you can trace everyone. Uh, and I think it's a culture that, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of people that don't have phones there. Uh, and as you know, everyone should know, or probably does know your phone is kind of the biggest surveillance tool uh, available in the world, regardless of how you have it set up. Uh, you can either emit a lot of information or a little information, but it's not no information. It's incredible and scary just to actually think about it. A lot of people don't think about it or choose not to, or, you know, that the typical line is, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why should I, 
worry. Uh, that push pull is just going to continue. But it's it's this is what depresses me about all this is again like we knew that war could get us on our back, but now we have another solid reason that just gets people on their back worldwide and succumbing to government shutdowns, and that's this pandemic. And it's really hard to see people fighting that, you know, in the years to come. Like you said, even something as simple as like a QR code checking in to where you're walking around the city. Like, I don't know how hygiene is really going to become, you know, people are going to look at hygiene, you know, five, 10 years from now, but it blows my mind to think that we would have to scan in QR codes, you know, here in the Western world. But maybe it will come to that. The extension of that that's actually worse is so uh, scanning in, uh, that's kind of like an opt-in, even if it's required, it's an opt-in function. But the, the kind of like brave new world scenario is actually where that type of surveillance is available through um, passive technical means. So obviously sure. there's been a lot of talk in, when we had the uh, rioting in Hong Kong around you know, facial recognition, uh, which you know, even... Uh, the more sophisticated tools seem to have capabilities that um, are mapping faces regardless of whether you're wearing a face mask. Um, and so, you know, that type of kind of moment where people wanted to protest but also felt like they were going to be monitored for doing so. And, and one of the amazing things that happened there was uh, I think they had their all-time high in terms of paying for public transportation with cash yeah. uh, because people wanted to get to the places where they were going to protest, but they didn't want to swipe in with a credit card or with their you know, mobile application. And so, you know, that actually created backlogs of people trying to get into the subway and into their public transportation. Uh, it was in part due to demand, but it was in part due to the fact that it was slower to get in paying in currency, uh, which, you know, is one of the reasons why, <laughs> excuse me, I think cash is still very important. Uh, and I don't like when I see governments trending away from cash because, you know, we're not at the point where Bitcoin is ubiquitous and where adoption is, uh, you know, available in a ubiquitous manner. And so cash is still a, a hedge and cash isn't 100 percent private uh, and it has serial numbers on it and it's, it's not untraceable. But uh, it gives sort of the average person a means to still buy things without necessarily creating a trail. Um, and, and so, you know, we shouldn't let go of cash readily, in my opinion. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever. Hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. When you sign up, you won't regret it. Uh, thanks again to Max, Roma, and everybody over at Hodl Hodl for the support. And uh, a reminder, they also organized the very well-run and fantastic Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin Conference every fall in Riga. So head on over to hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. Thanks again, and back to the show. I remember going to a Soho Forum debate about a year and a half ago in New York. It was Larry White, who's been on the show, versus Ken Rogoff, the esteemed Harvard economist who uh, wrote the This Time is Different and a lot of other uh, economic histories, and certainly Keynesian in many ways, uh, but, but he just continues to 
barrage home this point that like we're just being taken out by you know all these subversive dark market forces and like we just need to you know clamp down on them and cash is such a problem we got to get rid of cash and uh he's one of the big economic voices in that space but it is funny and it is interesting uh and heartening i would say is that every time there is a crisis the only way that the government seems to know how to deal with it is printing money. And that's not just digital money. That's not just bank reserves. I mean, they're continuing to print physical cash. You know, if you look at any chart of physical cash, it is going up. So that's at least heartening. Like there is no, even Sweden, you know, which is trending down, it's going up again. So that's good at least. Yeah, that's good. And if we can camp out on that criticism of, of cash and Bitcoin gets painted with the same brush, uh, it's one of my least favorite and I think least intellectual criticisms. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, there's no data uh, that suggests that you know cash is cash or specifically Bitcoin is kind of a uh, fuel for any black market economies. Yeah, sure. Bitcoin has been used on the dark web and people buy drugs with Bitcoin and people buy drugs with cash. Uh, and I don't think eliminating cash or Bitcoin would eliminate any of these dark markets uh, or gray economies. Uh, and we know that I forget what the latest stats are on Bitcoin, you know, as far as its use on dark web markets, but it's, it's like a couple percent. Uh, and you know, it's dwarfed by the U S dollar in terms of, you know, it's, uh, involvement in money laundering and, and, uh, you know, illicit activity. Right. Uh, and people also, I think at least the uninitiated have zero appreciation for how traceable Bitcoin is. Uh, and, and yes, it is pseudonymous, so it is not necessarily tied to your identity or your name. But you know what we see with the forensics companies and heuristics, and uh, even kind of amateur tracking of, of blockchain activity on on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, these things can readily be tied back to individuals' identities, uh, in part because there's so many KYC checkpoints within Bitcoin. You know, if you want to come in and out into uh, fiat currency, for instance, you will almost definitely uh, have to do so via some kind of KYC platform. And as soon as you create that nexus in your transactions, uh, you have to go out of your way to separate yourself from that kind of genesis point. Uh, and it's doable. Um, and you know, we've talked about it, but you usually have to be a fairly savvy user uh, to, to separate your Bitcoin transaction from your identity. Uh, and it involves you know, things like I'm a big proponent of CoinJoin and you know, using Samurai or, or Wasabi or any of the CoinJoin wallets. And I actually think you shouldn't just use those because you are trying to accrue some privacy yourself, but it actually accrues privacy to the entire blockchain when you contribute uh, coins into these wallets. So Let me stop you there, though, because um, obviously this is a big debate that has been, uh, I think, bubbling up over the years, but certainly over the last you know, six to 12 months is the fintech world itself is even actually beyond crypto i mean there there is a shadow banking industry there's there are layers and layers of accounts that people are you know uh, fintech companies are are generating that really aren't tracked by the government and that's you know what they call the shadow banking system the government wants to get a handle on that this is even before you even get to a discussion about crypto so kyc and aml of course again exploded after 911 it's been growing and growing and growing and uh, it's converging now with crypto. So every exchange, you know, that I'm curious to get your thoughts, you know, because every exchange, you know, their CEO, their leadership, they don't want to go to jail. So the legislation says you need to do KYC AML. And that is starting to include these things that were 
kind of like on the fringe, but with some of these wallets uh, that you mentioned, you know, and, and technology is improving. It's very interesting. It's all converging right now, and it's. I think it certainly is going to be the next big debate. Maybe you know, hopefully, it doesn't cause any sort of a hard fork debate. But I mean, this sort of coin join versus not uh, truly private on the blockchain versus not, and then when you go back into the endpoints, if you have mixed coins, some some exchanges, it's clear. I mean, your account will just be closed, or you might even have your coin seized. We know that it's coming. Uh, it's a long-winded way of saying we know that like this KYC AML is certainly coming on Bitcoin and exchanges and, and governments are not looking favorably at anonymous coins and they're not looking favorably at coin joining. What are your thoughts on all that? Where, how do you think, is there a resolution? Is there a start date, end date? Or is this sort of like mm-hmm. we continue on like we have in the physical cash world where you just have this sort of like physical cash underground market, coin join market versus sort of above board approved KYC market? Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and you know, just as a caveat to it, you know, look at HSBC, uh, a bank, you know, global bank in the most regulated markets in the entire world that was, you know, explicitly laundering money for terrorists and and you know drug dealers, not just like the guy on the corner drug dealer like cartels, uh, and they were caught and they had to admit to it and they got a fine that you know amounted to a percentage of their quarterly earnings that year. Unbelievable. Uh, and they have like full KYC and AML programs with, you know, hundreds of people sitting at terminals, you know, monitoring or supposedly monitoring that. Uh, so those systems are, are not perfect. And you see, you know, large institutions uh, circumventing them or at least being lax about it. Uh, although in the case of HSBC, it was clearly uh, intentional and they had to admit to that much. Um, but on the, on the crypto side, on the Bitcoin side, so first of all, uh, it's pretty rare, you know, if ever, that uh, regulation outpaces technology. So it's much more likely that we'll see, you know, additional privacy upgrades to the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, either kind of like on-chain or sort of third-party solutions or, or a mix uh, that, you know, will not be anticipated by regulators. And, and we, I'm in favor of that kind of happening before the regulation can catch up to it so that it becomes native privacy or at least some native privacy. I don't think Bitcoin it will catch up to Monero, for instance, right away. Um, but, uh, you know, if we that's kind of why I'm a proponent of just everyone using CoinJoin, because if everyone uses CoinJoin, then, then nobody uses CoinJoin. Um, so uh, the other thing is that I think, I'm probably getting aligned for this, but I think some regulation of the Bitcoin space is, probably good because it will drive adoption. Uh, And so if it remains an entirely unregulated kind of ethereal force that is only for, you know, technophiles and anarchists, uh, it doesn't have as much of a chance of serving its broader purpose of kind of financial autonomy and, uh, and, you know, a digital bearer asset and, and sort of benefiting a broader swath of the population. I only think that it's going to be able to do that if there's some regulation and acceptance and institutional, at least uh, um, institutions being not afraid of it. And I, we do see that. I mean, even you look at the narrative now versus a couple of years ago, even uh, you don't hear the kind of, oh, Bitcoin is just the, the currency of the dark web uh, line nearly as much. Um, but I, I do worry about kind of a knee-jerk reaction and and one of my favorite people to uh comment on is this congressman from california in the u.s uh 
of course I'm blanking on his name, Brad Sherman, Sherman yeah. uh, is yep, his name. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, thank God we can go look up who his donors are, uh, <laughs> because we have some transparency here, but you know, he has like a Chinese bank as a large donor. He has, you know, traditional payment processing companies as large donors. Uh, and he's, you know, a reactionary if there ever was one. Uh, I, I don't think he understands the first thing about, uh, Bitcoin and yet, you know, he's happy to rail against it. And, and the problem with him is he's actually influential and has, some authority. And, and I've looked, he's unlikely to be unseated in his home district. Uh, so while he's an easy subject for memes and disdain, uh, we should be worried about that kind of voice. And thankfully, there's, you know, uh, counterparties to that that are much more uh, interested in creating an environment for crypto and Bitcoin specifically to, to grow and have a use case. Uh, but I think the jury's still out. And, you know, back to our kind of original topic, in a time like this, uh, it could readily be something like people start selling a lot of N95 masks on the dark web for Bitcoin. And so someone picks up the cause that, you know, healthcare workers are being disadvantaged by these dark web markets that are selling Bitcoin. And because we're in a pandemic, we need to not only shut down the dark web markets, but cut off the means of payment. And, you know, you get kind of this sideways uh, attack on crypto. Uh, that you know goes unchecked and is sustained because we're in kind of you know, emergent circumstances. Uh, that could easily happen. Uh, and not, I mean, I've been giving a lot of examples about the U.S. because that's where I'm based, but that could easily happen elsewhere. Uh, and so, it's worthy of being vigilant about that kind of thing for sure. Those are good points. I I was interested to see his donors. You actually pointed that out to me a while back. That's a very interesting website. We'll link that website in the show notes. Uh, yeah, that you please. You mentioned uh, about the donors, and again, like you said, when you get in sort of non-typical circumstances like we're in now, uh, that stuff has a higher likelihood of getting getting rammed through. So, all stuff to be thinking about. Um, I'm not sure if we want to go through the whole article, but obviously, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and again, you wrote this in a pre-corona world, at least in the Western world, uh, I think. Everything was sort of raging in China at the time. You wrote this back in February, but you wrote a really interesting article. It's called Disappear Here, a Privacy Experiment on Medium. We'll link to it in the show notes about being able to move and purchase a house or rent a house not in your own name. I thought it was a really, really interesting article. You got a lot of good wit too. It's really a pleasure to read. You want to go into that a little bit, maybe, especially now that we're in a post Corona world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks for the kudos. And you know, I use wit to cover up my lack of expertise. But too modest. So what? Too modest. <laughs> what happened was just kind of through the being in the privacy world, I'd gotten to help some people with uh, who needed to extend their their privacy beyond just sort of private communications into. Uh, physically disappearing a little bit because they had, you know, threats to them or their family. And, and these things happen that are very real. And, you know, not everyone gets put in the witness protection program. Uh, and you, you need to kind of take things into your own hands sometimes. And so we were making all these recommendations and I'd seen how challenging it was for people. And so uh, when my family and I were moving, uh, which, by the way, I think this is very difficult to do if you're not moving. Because uh, once you've lived somewhere and you've strongly associated your physical address and location with your identity, it, it's almost impossible to kind of revoke that or, or turn that around. So yeah. if you're moving, this is when you can do it. Uh, and 
you guys should also caveat this really applies to the u.s and in some countries it may be easier or harder to do this but um you know the the challenge to to me and my family was to move and uh fully disassociate ourselves from our new physical address and, and then um do so not just in sort of public property record and kind of in the sort of legacy systems that tie you to your address but then uh in a digital sense too which is by the way, if you have a cell phone, pretty much impossible, but you can do a lot to mitigate it. I, I would say that Google probably knows where I live before the U.S. government does. Uh, you know, same with Facebook and any of the large tech properties. Um, but we can do a lot to mitigate that. I think it's very much worth doing. And so what I did was uh, did some kind of traditional asset protection type of things wherein the new property was purchased in the privacy trust that didn't have my, my name or my wife's name on it. And therefore, you know, anything that is recorded publicly uh, does not tie back to us. Uh, but then, you know, you have second layer challenges like getting utilities and, you know, setting up a internet account and you know, anything you want to have delivered to your home uh, from pizza to furniture uh, to just telling your friends where you live if, that you want to invite them over for dinner to having an Uber pick you up at your home. I mean, all of these things leave little breadcrumbs uh, and some of them uh, aggregate by the sort of vast data collection uh, marketplace that's out there. And they get created and or they get uh, aggregated into a profile on all of us. Uh, and sometimes that is sold to insurance companies. Uh, it, it could be have medical relevance. It could be sold uh, to companies that are doing business intelligence on you or kind of anyone that has money and an ability to engage in these marketplaces can buy this information. And a lot of times it's supposedly hashed or anonymized, but that's one of the biggest jokes uh, out there to anyone who's kind of even spent two minutes looking at it closely, because if you were to take kind of the hash of my location data and maybe purchasing data uh, and you'd say, well, it's hashed, so it's anonymized, but no one else is going to have that same signature that I would. No one else maybe goes to the same office location and home location and gym location. And, you know, it doesn't take an even skilled investigator to start peeling that back and say uh, with pretty high certainty who that is. Yeah. Uh, and then once you have that identity, you run that identity back into it and you get, you know, an entire what's called pattern of life. So it's everywhere that someone goes, their spending habits, the interactions they have with other people. Uh, and it's a fingerprint, uh, and it, it's as unique as your actual fingerprint because no one has, no one has ever or will ever do the exact same things that you do, uh, and that's the level of granularity of this information. So, you know, a challenge that is basically insurmountable, like I said, if you want to have any devices in your home. But what you can do is, you know, you cannot have your devices tie to your name, uh, so you can have all the billing accounts route through mass payment modalities and you know, use um, corporate entities or structures to pay for things. Uh, you can, you know, do some very kind of like brick and mortar things, like don't have the Uber come to your front door, just have it come, you know, a block away and pick you up and drop you off there. And when you have an Uber account, don't put your credit card in it, you know, use Uber credits or use a credit card or payment modality that isn't strongly tied to you. Uh, and yes, there will still be a profile on your activity, but it's going to be a lot harder to tie back to your identity. And if you repeat this process over and over kind of in everything you do, uh, eventually you'll kind of make for a much more difficult target. And so that's the, the gist of it. But then I had kind of one other layer, which is 
uh, a disinformation or misinformation layer. So uh, try to obfuscate everything that is actually you and then promulgate other information that uh, muddies up the profile that you're creating. So uh, I, this is just me being absurd, but kind of created some uh, alias um, personalities that exist only online. And I would use those to do things on my behalf. So to create accounts or to order things or uh, just to interact over email with uh, various counterparties so that there's all sort of uh, sorts of kind of like uh, non personally identifiable information out there. And that actually gets aggregated and parsed and sold in what's called tier two databases. Uh, so a tier one database is something that's verified. So it's like your, you know, uh, utilities or um, tax records, that kind of thing. Uh, tier two databases are aggregated based on kind of uh, scrapes of internet information. And you can pretty easily just kind of put information out there that you know will get scraped. And over the course of a few months, uh, it creates a fake profile associated with your real address. So not only do you not get associated with your home, but some other whatever uh, gets associated with your home. And uh, it, it makes for a difficult time. I'm not saying that someone with a lot of capabilities or uh, significant technical resources uh, couldn't totally unravel everything that I've done, but it wouldn't be trivial. Uh, and I'd like to think that I would you know, make them have to work over the weekend to do it. Uh, and just that makes me happy. So, uh, but it's been hard. Uh, and you have to have a spouse who's willing to go along the way with you because it's inconvenient. Uh, and you have to be a little bit weird with your neighbors and you have to tell your, you know, parents that they can't write birthday cards and have them delivered to your home. Uh, and you have to have everything, you know, all your mail has to go to like a relay point. Uh, and you have to be a little bit like less than forthcoming in every application you ever fill out. Uh, so it is, you know, not to be taken lightly, but I, I found it to be really rewarding and worthwhile. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts about what it means in the long run. And obviously you said it's rewarding and worthwhile, but like compared to maybe the, you know, quote the rest of us, you know, I'm reminded of Jameson Lopp did a similar speech and you linked to some of his stuff as well in your article, uh, at the Baltic Honey Badger conference two years ago, I guess it was, or about a year and a half ago, on some of the sort of extreme steps that you do need to take, which may seem extreme to sort of the average person. But, you know, I'm reminded, I think when you, you talked about maybe being less than forthcoming on some applications, you talked about like when you set up your ISP or some mobile stuff, some utilities, whatever it might be, you might even have to be a little bit tricky when you're talking to someone on the phone uh, because they just aren't really used to dealing with a company or some intermediary uh, or a trustee in all of these situations. They're just used to dealing with someone who has their name on the account, which is exactly attached to the address that they're servicing. So it really are steps and you know conscious work and effort that needs to be taken for this to be done. If I made a statement that it just seems difficult that the average person would go through with that, I think you'd probably agree. So kind of like going back, we were talking about coin joining, like if, if everyone's coin joining, then no one's coin joining. But if no one's coin joining, if no one's doing these steps, you know, are they going to be able to pick you out anyway? Yeah, um, absolutely. And by the way, uh, thanks for mentioning Jameson Lobb's article. He, I, I've never met him, but his article was exceptional uh, and really kind of struck it. He was very good about, I think, identifying what can and can't be done. Um, because, you know, as I tried to say, you're never going to get around everything, uh, short of kind of living off the grid and not having devices. Um, but, you know, 
and what you were talking about was social engineering, right? Where you kind of yeah. engineer your way into a situation using, you know, pretending to be someone else. And, and it's usually used in a nefarious sense. That's how uh, sim swapping generally starts. But uh, in my case, it was just to kind of further affect some privacy, but not, you know, because every time you call someone, they're going to say, and who am I speaking with? Uh, and that's a question I'm not going to answer. So uh, it turns out that a perfectly acceptable answer is anyone's name. And so that's kind of like social engineering 101, you know, don't answer the phone in your own name. Um, but yeah, so my message to someone who like hears all that is like, yeah, that's cool, but you know, I don't have the time or interest or wherewithal or all the special tools that's required is, uh, yeah, just start by doing like one thing, maybe, you know, if you're not using a VPN, use a VPN. Uh, if you can, you know, get a VoIP number and not always give out your cell phone number, great, do that. Uh, buy some Bitcoin, learn how to use it and, you know, download a was, uh, Wasabi or Samurai wallet and start to familiarize yourselves with these because privacy occurs on the spectrum. And uh, for me, like, you know, I started knowing none of this and kind of like graduated into the more uh, aggressive pastures as time went on. Uh, and so I think it's much more about like everyone doing something than kind of having everyone, you know, disappear off the map. Um, and what, what comes of that, and this has been one of the great things about Bitcoin is as you learn about privacy or Bitcoin, you go down this rabbit hole and you'll ultimately glean some things that are valuable to you that kind of resonate with your own personal, uh, ambitions or moral compass. Uh, and if you take a couple things out of that and add them to your life, that's great. So, um, you know, I, I always tell people, uh, you know, shamefully hanging my head low that the first altcoin I ever bought was Ripple. Uh, and at the time they were, and they still are, you know, great at marketing and everyone had heard of them. And uh, I, I just kind of like got sucked into that bandwagon. Uh, and so I bought a little Ripple and, you know, I started with Bitcoin, obviously, I bought a little Ripple. Uh, and here's what happened. You know, I learned later about these various blockchains and some of them, you know, being more substantial than others. And, and now I've come to, you know, kind of full circle on it. But uh, I don't think we should judge people based on their path as long as they are on that path. So, you know, let's not make fun of like everyone who's involved in Tron, because some of those people are going to get involved in Tron and then learn about Bitcoin and they're going to sort of become contributors, you know, on the main chain. Yeah, great point. Uh, and it, it's, I see it a lot on crypto Twitter. I see it a lot in the community. There's like various levels of disdain. There's disdain in the Ethereum community for the Bitcoin community. I, I mean, we're way too small of a community in crypto to be, you know, shooting our wounded. Uh, we, we need to kind of be welcoming everyone in and whatever the path that brings you in, it's fairly difficult to get involved in crypto, spend time learning about it and not come to the conclusion, you know, that Bitcoin is the most important chain in, in the community and maybe maybe we'll be the only survivor. We know we don't know. I think there's contributions that are coming from the altcoin space for sure. But, uh, you know, when, when there's two billion people using cryptocurrency, uh, sure, then let's, you know, get into some factions and start making fun of the naysayers. But uh, we're too small for that. No, I completely agree. And I think that's a great that will be really interesting to see how it, it plays out in the future. I want to maybe segue into another article that you wrote, which was a bit more lighthearted, but definitely related to the corona uh, pandemic. You called it Zoom morons. Everybody's using Zoom. It's pretty funny. Again, uh, this article, we've, we've seen some funny memes 
uh, with you know people walking around naked and whatever with all their office workers on looking. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. just hilarious stuff going on with Zoom, but also potentially nefarious stuff as well. Let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And so I like to come at these things, or I try to come at them with some humility. As so, uh, I also have used Zoom, and I probably will use Zoom again because it's ubiquitous and sure unless you want to sort of sit on the sidelines for every single conversation that occurs there you'll probably end up using it and so i would say there's you know way better uh commercially available some open source platforms that are you know people should look at uh yeah i'm a proponent of signal obviously that's just peer-to-peer uh skype uses the open whispers crypto libraries um in their uh implementation of, of security. So, you know, that's obviously better than most. Uh, but so to your question on Zoom, uh, I don't know how none of this ever came out because Zoom has been around since 2011. So they've had nine years wherein they've had millions of users and somehow you know, none of these security concerns ever surfaced. And it's not like they had, they were unknown. I mean, the reason Zoom has kind of skyrocketed is because everyone knew of them. And so as soon as uh, the need increased, you know, everyone kind of went to Zoom as their primary thing. It, it wasn't like WebEx or um, uh, Hangouts or GoTo, or I, I can't think of all of them, but there's a bunch of them, but Zoom kind of captured the market share. Yeah. Uh, and what it turned, so they have a bunch of silly stuff that they, and some of it they're trying to improve and some of it they already have improved and, you know, mitigating these Zoom bombers, which are, you know, uh, as I said, you know, kind of the... Uh, maturity and IQ equivalent of you know, what we would do when we were 12, um, calling someone and asking if their refrigerator is running. Uh, the, those, those issues can be handled. Uh, those are just technical issues. The concern that I really had was that Zoom uses key management servers in China. Uh, and it's not all of them. Uh, but we know a couple of things. We know they have 700 employees on the mainland. Uh, we know that communications that do not originate or terminate in China will still route through those key management servers. Uh, and we know that the Chinese are very draconian in their management of data that crosses you know, over and back the Great Firewall. And so basically, without getting too technical, and by the way, I'm not a technical person, so I, I couldn't get too far down this rabbit hole anyway, but if information traverses the, the firewall and routes through a key management server in China, it means that it has been decrypted and analyzed and parsed and set aside. Uh, that's basically true. Uh, and so if you and I are on a Zoom call and, and you're in Eastern Europe and I'm in the Eastern Seaboard of the US and we route through one of those key management servers, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of cryptography is implemented uh, across that channel. It is unpacked uh, and then repacked and sent to you. Uh, that's just how that works. And so as an American company that was, first of all, suggesting that they had end-to-end encryption, which has been you know, revealed to be untrue, uh, I think it's a major breach of client trust to be using key management servers in China. And even if they kind of revoke those key management servers, having 700 employees there uh, is always going to give you exposure to kind of the more draconian Chinese regulatory overhang, which, you know, is obviously state implemented. But if you are a company over there that's doing business there, that's registered locally, 
you basically do so uh, under the agreement that if they want to come examine or inspect or kind of retain any uh, elements of how you're implementing your technology, they are able to do that as a trade-off for being permitted to do business there. Yeah. So uh, this is these are like these are not things that I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat conspiracy. Like we could go way further into conspiracy. These are just kind of known things about how business is done there and how uh, you know data traverses the internet and how encryption works. So uh, when we have 200 million people suddenly on Zoom to include, you know, uh, sensitive corporate information, private individual information, and kind of everything in between, some of which is routing, you know, across uh, service, services that are dubious, I think we should at least be aware. Uh, I cer certainly think we should be concerned. And then the last thing I think is there are ways to approach being a user that are a little more sophisticated. Uh, and so if someone does invite you to a Zoom call, you can do so by creating a Zoom account that does not use your primary, by the way, I advocate never using your primary email address for anything, but you can use an alias email account or a burner email account. Uh, don't use your real name when you sign up, you know, don't give them your phone number. Uh, don't refer friends when you go through the sign up process. Uh, basically kind of manage your identity, uh, you know, hit a VPN before you engage in the Zoom link. Uh, and so, Therefore, yeah, you're using a system, it's imperfect, your content is still kind of unreliably protected, but at least your identity isn't strongly associated with that session. Uh, and so I, I find that to be kind of a middle ground because I know for a fact I have Zoom meetings still coming up on my calendar and uh, I don't quite feel like taking the moral high ground and just you know ducking out of all of it. I think that might be a little bit much, but I do feel like I, it's a trusted, untrusted platform and therefore it should be treated as hostile uh, and, you know, handled with care. That's kind of my conclusion. Great advice and certainly uh, almost hilariously unavoidable these days in the situation we find ourselves in. How uh, have you felt the company is responding to some of the criticism? So I'm glad you asked that because first of all, Zoom donated you know, some millions of accounts to U.S. school kids so that they could do, you know, home learning. I think that's, you know, excellent uh, corporate uh, generosity or probably a better term for that. But uh, so that's great. And I think their CEO has been responsive and he seems contrite and he has acknowledged that these are issues and that they're working on them. And they've, I know that agreed to penetration testing and they uh, over the last weekend they rolled out uh, sort of better privacy by default settings when you create an account or start a meeting you know to include enforcing passwords and uh, they were kind of retaining information on the cloud by default uh, that you have to like turn off in the settings uh, and that you know, I could go in a whole rabbit hole on sort of default settings on various platforms uh, some of them actually will allow reasonable privacy. So LinkedIn is a good example. If you go through all the privacy settings on LinkedIn and lock down every single option they give you, it actually isn't terrible. Um, but the way that the average account is when it first gets created is kind of the most open and most sharing and most porous uh, of all their settings. And that's the way most of these companies are because they glean the most data and they you know, can uh, accrue the most value from your account that way. Uh, and Zoom is like that. If you go into Zoom and, you know, I'm not like an uninitiated person, but there's right. a lot of different settings and they don't all kind of make sense when you read them. Uh, so it requires some inspection and, and some time, but you can approach it in a kind of better way than just the the native, uh, you know, fresh account settings that you would get when you sign up. Yeah, very good points there. 
Well, this has been great, man. Very good uh, conversation about privacy and, and Bitcoin. Maybe as we close it, you know, we are in this brave new world of uh, lockdown. And uh, for many, they don't know when it will end. Like you said, it's going to be a spectrum. It's going to be a, a journey. Uh, I like what you said about everybody. You know, just we should encourage people to at least take those steps and get on that path. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess just in general, maybe we can close it on a more optimistic note uh, than we've been talking. You know, have you found any uh, sort of redemption or some some interesting? Uh, you know, what have you maybe even enjoyed about some of the necessities of this quarantine in the midst of this this crisis? Uh, first of all, buy Bitcoin. Go learn about it. Um, yeah, you won't regret it. But uh, second, I've found that that because social interaction isn't just kind of handed to me anymore, that it has to be sought out, that I've actually communicated with more people more often uh, and people that, you know, I haven't communicated as much or as frequently in the past uh, in the last 60 days. And that has definitely been a silver lining. And I actually think, you know, you and I were at the same table at a wedding, um, I guess, two summers ago in Spain. And, you know, my wife and your girlfriend sat next to each other and did a bunch of talking. And unfortunately, I don't think we actually talked that much that night. But, um, but you know, we've maintained a friendship uh, virtually for quite a while. Uh, and it's totally attainable. Yeah. And so, you know, I've just kind of decided that some of the artifices I had in my head around who I should communicate with and, you know, who has been too long to reach out to, just setting those aside and ping some people from college and high school that I haven't talked to in a while. And I've substituted texts with phone calls and phone calls with, you know, video wherever possible to kind of personalize things. Uh, and just, it's just forced me because, you know, I don't go to the gym and run into people and have idle conversations. So now if I want to have an idle conversation, I have to seek it out. Um, and all of those tools are available to me to do that. And we can even do it, you know, securely, but, uh, I've actually find it, found it heartening to connect with some folks that it's been a while on. Uh, and I would, you know, I would encourage, you know, anyone who's feeling isolated to just do that, reach out to someone, everyone knows someone. And there's probably someone, you know, that's more isolated than you. Uh, there's certainly people that are more isolated than I am. Um, and I think if what comes out of this is, you know, there's obviously an enormous toll and a human tragedy to it, but uh, maybe there'll be some gratitude about how connected we are. And uh, I can just kind of imagine the next time I get to see a bunch of friends in person, how grateful I'll be for that experience. Because uh, that was, I took that for granted. And sometimes my wife and I would, you know, get invited to something and we'd roll our eyes because we'd be like, oh, I'd rather just stay home this weekend and do nothing. Uh, and you know, now I, I think I would think of those things differently, uh, to be grateful for freedom of movement of access of, you know, uh, our friends and, and our communities. Um, and I'm sure that there will be a lot of negative stories that come out of this, but I think there will be positive ones too. And I hope that we can hang on to, to the positive stuff. Yeah, man, that's a great way. Why is that for being Pollyanna? <laughs> no, nah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. I mean, I think, um, we got to look at the glasses half full and uh, like, you know, we are social creatures. We do need that interaction. But like you said, there's going to be a lot of, I think there's gonna be a lot of good human ingenuity that's going to come out of this. And, um, you know, even though there are, we, we talked a lot about, you know, the draconian stuff, which usually surrounds privacy and regulation and, and, and even Bitcoin these days. But um, I think viewing it through that positive lens is, is really important. And uh, I've done that a little bit, but actually just hearing you, I'm going to definitely do it more. So I really uh, thank you for that. Yeah, man, just it's been great to have you on. Uh, finally, we've been talking about it for a while. Really, really appreciate it. 
congrats as well. I hope I'm not invading too much privacy, but I guess Corona babies will be babies that are born during this quarantine. But uh, you had a baby uh, just before the quarantine, and uh, I'm glad to hear that it's going well. And um, congrats to your expanding brood there and the fam. So definitely, definitely, uh, it's been great. It's been great chatting, Alec. As we close it, any further uh, thoughts and and where can our listeners uh, find out more about Halo? Yeah, no, thanks, and, and same to you. Uh, and yeah, so haloprivacy.com, uh, you know, I write some quasi-intellectual dribble on, on Medium, which you can put in the show notes, and you won't be shocked that we keep a low profile, so there's not a lot of ton of info out there on us, but I, I certainly welcome uh, being in touch with, with the folks that, that are kind enough to listen. All right, well, we'll link to all that in the show notes uh, and more for sure. Alec, uh, really appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot for coming on. All the best in your quarantining and, uh, and good luck in the future. Likewise, my friend. Talk to you soon. Take care.